Welcome to Plenary Session. I'm Dr. Vinay Prasad. I'm an associate professor at the University of California, San Francisco. My interests are medicine, hematology, oncology, and health policy, and that's what you're going to get on this podcast. This week, we got a great episode in store for you. We've got an interview, and I think you're going to really like this. But first, a plug. If you like this podcast, check out the new website, www.plenarysessionpodcast.com. We've got show notes. We've got trial summaries. We've got everything you could want on the website. Follow us on Twitter at plenary underscore session. Write a review for us on the iTunes store. And become a supporter for this podcast on Patreon. Patreon backers get access to the slides for presentations I give on Plenary Session. You also get a few bonus lectures. And with that, let's start the show. All right, we're rolling. I'm back in Plenary Session, video edition, joined by Daniel Myers. Daniel Myers is a resident in Calgary, at the University of Calgary. And he is going into internal medicine, hopefully oncology. Um, and he is the author of a new paper that's part of the Booth legacy. It's called Industry Payments to U.S. Physicians for Cancer Therapeutics and Analysis of 2016 to 2018 Open Payments Data. It's uh, in the Journal of Cancer Policy. We will link to it in the show notes. So, Daniel, it's a pleasure to speak with you. Thanks very much for having me, Then I am a big fan of the show, so I'm excited to be here today to chat about the paper and hopefully whatever uh, other interesting topics come up. Oh, thank you so much. Very kind of you and, and the two other fans. So you three of you probably know each other real well. Um, Daniel, uh, <laughs> um, this is an interesting paper, um, but maybe before we talk about that, um, we should talk about, I don't know, how did you get linked up with, with, with Christopher Booth? Uh, you wrote to us, didn't you? Yeah, so as uh, Dr. Booth always says, it's kind of the story that uh, sets the stage for, yes. for interesting research. Uh, you do so, listen. You do listen. Okay, go. Yeah. yeah. Um, so, you know, maybe I'll just get into a little bit of the background. So about me, um, born and raised in, in Winnipeg, which we just talked about, a great place, but very cold. Uh, <laughs> made my way out to Queen's University for my undergraduate uh, degree in life science back in 2011. At that time, I didn't actually get connected with Dr. Booth at all. You know, fast forward. Um, I guess seven or eight years, went to medical school at the University of Calgary, did a master's degree in cancer biology. Um, and the hours I spent in the animal lab, I, I needed something to listen to. So, um, you know, lo and behold, I stumbled across the plenary session uh, back in 2018. Oh, the uh, inaugural year. <laughs> yeah, exactly. That, yeah. So, uh, you know, I, I've, been, I've, been, I've been there in the background since 2018. But, you I know, see. at any rate, I, I started getting interested in, in some of the topics that... Um, you were talking about started reading the literature, um, you know, discovered Dr. Booth's work, um, kind of just worked my way from there. And, um, you know, I guess it was 2019 in the fall, I was getting ready to defend my master's. I was applying to residency. Um, and that's when I found the open payments data set. And I just started, you know, perusing it and, and came up with a, an idea for a project. And the timing just happened to work out that I was going to Kingston for an interview uh, in uh, internal medicine. So, um, you know, I sent to you and, and Dr. Booth uh, the pitch and um, here we are. Here we are a couple of years later. Oh, that's interesting. Okay, that's a great story. And I have been to Manitoba. That's what uh, listeners should know. I went to Winnipeg. I believe it was January. Actually, I've been to Winnipeg a couple of times, actually. Uh, um, uh, I think I went there a, a year or two later to give a lecture, but I went there in 2014. It was, it was lovely people and we had uh, a great, uh, great session. 
And I always joke that actually, I think I gave a talk, one of the two talks I gave was on cancer screening. And I gave it in Winnipeg. And then I think I flew to MD Anderson in Houston, Texas, gave the same talk on cancer screening. And I think it was a total difference. So it was about a hundred degree temperature difference. <laughs> so it literally went from like minus whatever it was to like nuclear hot. And it went from standing ovation to practically being booed off stage. <laughs> it was a total difference uh, because in Anderson, they didn't like any questions being asked about cancer screening. Of course, it's all, you know, you know the thing about cancer screening, more is better and sooner is better. And let's just start right now, get a baseline. So anyway, so that was my, uh, my trip to Winnipeg. Um, let's talk about this paper. Now, there've been a lot of people doing work in conflict of interest. And actually you came, you came to me at a time when I was, I, I swore to myself, I'm, out of the, I'm gonna get out of the game. I've been in the game for five years, and I don't know if people know this, but after a few years, I, 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 I reappraised where I am, and uh, I decide if it's worth it to continue something or to give it up, um, and I, I gave up on the conflict of interest, um, and what do I mean by that? I just felt like um, it was a field where, you know, we had done a lot of work. We had shown that, you know, the oncologists on Twitter were conflicted more than the average bear, than the average oncologist. Um, those conflicts seem to carry over into the content they're tweeting. They're more likely to tweet about certain drugs. They're more favorable about those drugs. We had looked at the ASCO. You know, ASCO makes you have the disclosure slide. And, um, and, and, and we had looked at it because I felt like, oh, you know, they say, well, there's no problem here. We just disclose. It's okay. We disclose. And I see them. They're like, oh, here's my disclosures. Boom. It's off. Boom. I'm like, you can't read. I can't read that fast. Uh, you know. human can read. Yeah. Well, and then we published that paper. Um, yeah. yeah. With Aaron Boothby um, in Jam Oncology, we published that 38% uh, are literally fast flashed faster than a human being can read. Um, which is just, I think, emblematic of the fact that, you know, nobody gives a shit. I mean, they just don't care. They don't care about the conflict. And then they say that disclosure is the solution. Of course, disclosure is not a solution. The solution is recusal. But you don't want recusal because you don't want to give up the money. So, all right, anyway. So, you know, and then I realized that all of the key constituencies in oncology, the power players, um, they were the ones who have the most to lose. And I think they're the most reluctant. Um, oh, we published some other things. I mean, I think we published a paper saying that the people who go to the ODAC and defend the product at ODAC, like we're going to have it next week, um, that they're incredibly conflicted. And then we published something I think rather heretical that I suspect that conflict and career success go hand in hand. Um, somebody said that, you know, they're successful despite the fact they have to make disclosures. I think you're successful because you're making the disclosures. In fact, you're getting probably opportunities to be having ghost authorship handed to you or medical writers handing manuscripts to you to you put your name on. Um, and I think we showed that to some degree. And I think, you know, people can debate our methods in a CMAJ open paper by Victoria Kaysner. So anyway, so this was where I was emotionally. I was, I'd been doing this work, banging my head against the wall. And of all the things I was doing, it was the thing that was bringing me the most grief because, you know, you talk about trial design, you talk about this, there's some people who dislike it, but a lot of people like it. We talk about conflict of interest and then everyone was very unhappy. And it was like in direct proportion to their importance because they are more conflicted. So anyway, but you entered and you had a very different idea. Everyone who's been looking at conflict, we start with people and we look at who's paying them. Um, uh, or we look at all the oncologists, people, I guess these are all people, data sets of people. You flipped it. You said, let's look at the drug. Yeah, and I think that's, um, that's what we felt was unique about our approach. And I think the advantage to approaching it that way is you eliminate some of the bias of kind of just searching out the key opinion leaders, so to speak. And you really just look at it more from a systematic point of view, um, because we know that oncology care is more than about the medical and hematolo hematologic oncologists. Some uh, say, multi, so say, multi, some say. 
<laughs> some say, yeah, some say yeah. that, yeah, but okay, I guess it's true. I guess it's but, you know the 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 surgeons who who yes. cut out the tumors, the radiologists who review the imaging, um, the laboratory specialists who look at the slides. So you know, it's I a was team curious, effort, of course, it's a I team. was curious to know how how the payments for these drugs extended, you know, across the cancer system <laughs> as opposed to just one type of physician. And that's what I think is, uh, so as I say, just when I thought I was out, you pulled me back in. You pulled me back into the game of the conflict of interest game. But uh, this time I was, I was with you, I was with Booth, I was with some other wonderful people, um, and, uh, and it was intriguing. And I think I remember seeing an early version of the data, and I was like, hmm, more intriguing than I thought. Because I would have thought, uh, you know, what do I know? I would have thought that if I was making a drug that works in the metastatic incurable setting, that the only person I would be paying would be the person who's prescribing the, medic, the drug for metastatic incurable cancer. Um, but it turned out that's not the case, that most of these drugs, which are developed in the advanced metastatic setting, the money is flowing to other parties. The money is flowing to other people, ancillary people. So I wonder if you might highlight, um, I guess, I don't know, what, what are some of the key results? Let's get into the results. Yeah, so I mean, this is a really data-heavy paper. Um, maybe before I talk about the results, I yes. can just kind of give credit where credit is due, so to yes, speak. Yes, do it. Um, so you know, this was a, a team effort, as you said. Dr. Booth, uh, the factory of Dr. Booth, uh, ran the leadership side. Yourself, uh, Dr. Bashal Gaiwali, um, and Dr. Matt McKinnis, who's a radiologist and scientist in Ottawa. And I think probably um, you know the most important person in this project was Tim Chisholm. You know, a lot, uh, Tim and I actually go way back. So, so Tim was my next door roommate uh, at Queen's University on the second uh, floor of Gordon uh, Hall uh, residence building. Um, and Tim is the person who told me about the book Emperor of All Maladies in the fall of 2011. Okay. Um, and he was present with me when I purchased that book from the Indigo Bookstore on Princess Street in Kingston. And that was Support local bookstores. That, you know, that was the, the jump off point for me to get interested in oncology. So this is really kind of a, a really um, fascinating circle that closed with this paper with Tim. But anyways, Tim is an extremely talented uh, data scientist. He's an epidemiologist who works in Ontario um, navigating the pandemic right now. And um, I was very fortunate to have Tim agree to, to crunch the numbers and, and pull down this massive data set for us. So, um, you know, I think... The paper kind of ends if, if Tim's not part of it. So I think I really need to give him the credit there. Um, and then, so I guess in terms of the paper, so, That's you know, a lot, a lot of data here. Um, I'd encourage everyone who's interested just to, to take a look at it and I'll just cover the salient points. So I think the first thing to say is that we looked at over three years. So we looked 2016, 17, 18. Um, we didn't predefine any statistical hypotheses. I think with a data set of this size, if you wanted to, you could really kind of fit your statistical analysis for whatever conclusion you want to draw. So we just avoided that altogether. And we really took a descriptive approach. We, we'll save that for COVID. Yeah. <laughs> we'll save that for a COVID paper. There was, there was no cherry picking. We really just wanted yeah, to- Yeah, that's, that's fair. Yeah. So I'll fix, I'll fix it on the 2018 data. So in 2018, the total value of payments for anti-cancer drugs, so drugs specifically with indications in cancer, Notch supportive care medications, et cetera, just for, for anti-cancer drugs was just under 100 million American dollars. Uh, so 98.5 million. Uh, that was about a 30% increase from 2016. Um, so, you know, staggering amount of money. And for reasons I can talk about, I think this is actually an underestimate of, of how big the problem is. And this um, is money that the manufacturers of these products are giving to docs. Yeah, these are not research payments or associated research payments. These are consulting fees, honoraria, speaking fees, um, you know, fees for food and beverage and nice cocktails when you go to ASCO or, or ESMO. Um, this is money in this is money in the pocket. 
So just to be clear, this is money that goes directly in my pocket. That's right. And I just want to, I just want to disclose how much money did you find went to me? I, I did specifically look you up. Did you really? Uh, I did. <laughs> yeah. What'd you find? Well, this was, in the, I looked you up in the early days when I found plenary session and I was like, this guy better not be receiving any payments. Zero uh, dollars to- yeah, Actually, I don't even think I'm in the database because I think uh, it's always been zero. Yeah. It, I avoid it like the plague. I, did I ever tell you that story? Do uh, people on this podcast have heard, you know, I had to go to that, give that lecture at a uh, big fire, uh, pharmaceutical company. And I'm happy to do that. You know, if any pharmaceutical company, people want me to give a lecture, I'm happy to do it. Cause I actually think it's a very productive discussion, but I went and I brought my own thermos of coffee. You know, I didn't even want to drink their water. You know, I pack, I pack my own coffee and I had my own cup. Um, and, uh, you know, like I was going on a camping trip and, uh, and then they all ate and I would watch with ravenous eyes, hungry, but I wouldn't eat. <laughs> and now I'm like, oh, well, what's the point? No one cares. You know, okay. All right, here we go. Go on. Okay. So you started with the money, 100 million. It's a fair bit of money. Um, and it's going to these doctors. And, and I guess why does it have to be doctors? I mean, I think people don't know. The, the, the open payments data set is restricted to a subset of claims, which is it has to be a company that has at least one product on the US marketplace. So if you don't have a product in the US marketplace, you can give all the money you want. No one will ever know about it. And the second thing it has to have is that the doctor, I believe, has to be registered as a, a Medicare provider. They have to be billing Medicare. So the PhDs of the world, sorry, health economists, no one, no one will know if you're getting paid for the time being, um, uh, that they're not in the database. And all these people um, on COVID, for instance, I see so many people saying that, well, you know, even after mass vaccination, we're still going to need to test everyone every day for the end of time. And if there's a company that, say, makes a test and they're paying a PhD who's always quoted in the news, that's not going to be the data set either. It'll never be in the data set. So it's only for people who see patients, who bill. It's only for companies that sell a product in the US market. Um, and you find $100 million. And I interrupted you. So please continue from that. Yeah. No, that's, that is important to recognize because I think you know, no matter how you try to carve these projects, there's limitations in the database. And I think, you know, some of the pushback we got in the review process was about the limitations of the database, but that doesn't make yeah. the data that's there not real, right? So I think it is important to acknowledge that the data is the data. Um, I'll just say one thing. So yeah. the error that is in this data set is that it's not comprehensive. There's a lot of money that's funneled through uh, uh, CME companies, which are uh, companies that purports to offer education and who knows what they're actually offering. They're offering marketing, I think. And, and that money is funneled through that. And so it, the doctor doesn't disclose that money. But um, so I think there are errors of omission. I, I'm happy to say there are errors of omission in the data set. But what about errors of um, misattribution? And I do think some people have some genuine stories that they're dinged in there. They didn't do it. They didn't take that money. They were at a meeting. Um, you know, the meeting was catered. They didn't know about that. Um, and they're dinged. Um, I think those are few. And I think both, uh, I mean, well, I think the errors of being wrongly implicated are few. I think the errors of omission, I think are actually quite substantive, but that's another conversation. But let's, so let's just say the data are the data. These are the data. There might be a little bit of error, probably more likely to omit than to misclassify as mine. Yeah. So this might be a good jump off point for me just to quickly touch on why I think the hundred million is an underestimate. Yeah. So our, our data is really restricted to payments that are directly linked to an anti-cancer drug. Uh -huh. There are anecdotally um, a very large number of payments that are made from the same companies that make those drugs that are not listed as being directly linked to the drug. Mm -hmm. So for example, uh, you know, I'll pick on Dr. Booth because uh, he's number one Canadian, number two. I know he doesn't take these payments, but <laughs> let's say Dr. Booth gets paid $50,000 from company A sure. to talk about drug B. Yes. Um, he takes another $50,000 from company A, but there's no linked drug. 
I guess you could safely assume that a portion of those payments not linked to the drug are probably to talk about behind closed doors, a particular drug, but those payments would not be included in our data set. So the numbers that we present, we can say for certain are linked to anti-cancer drugs, but we're missing an unknown portion of, of payments that are from a company, but are not listed as being tied to a particular drug. That's so that's why I think it's an underestimate. Yeah. Okay. Go on. That's good. Okay. Okay. Oh, so $100 million, I said, um, in terms of the number of physicians, um, that was about 30,000. 30% of them were medical or hematologic oncologists, 30% of them surgeons, and the remainder 40% kind of distributed relatively equally across the other subspecialties. Unsurprisingly, about 70% of the number of payments and about 70% of the total value of payments went to medical or hematologic oncologists. Uh, about 20% of the payments and 20% of the value went to the surgeons. And I thought the interesting point is the number thir- the third specialty, like the highest um, value of payments was actually to radiologists. So they received um, about 2% of sorry, all payments. Sorry, but... my phone is ringing. Okay, I'm yeah, sorry, I apologize. This damn phone. Okay, sorry. That was terrible. And this is a new episode format where I can't edit. So I look like an idiot. All right, I apologize. You're saying... Go back to the part. Most of the money is going to the heme or med onks, as God intended is what you wanted to say. Most of, okay. (laughs) Uh, um, But um, uh, um, uh, uh, you were going on to the other groups of people who are also getting the money. Yeah. So, I mean, we separate into 10 groups. I won't go through, I won't bore you and go through all of them, but the top three, the, the medical oncologists, the surgical oncologist number two, and number three were the radiologists who received about 11% of the total value of payments, but only about 2% of the number of payments. Mm, 11% of the value, but 2% of the number? Correct. Dang, that's good radiology. By the way, I'm looking at figure two in the paper. And figure two, people need to look at figure two. In fact, you know, can you share your screen and show them figure two? Can you do that? We we could do that theoretically. I think we can can try doing that. Let's try doing that. Share your screen, show them figure two, because figure two is a, I don't want to botch it. What's the name of this district? It's a distribution figure. Yeah, it's, um, a rain, it's a rainfall plot. Rainfall, obviously. I know about waterfalls. I know about swim lane plots or swimmers plots, but I didn't know about rainfall plot. It's a rainfall plot, obviously. And here it is. Boom. Look at this. This is log scale on the x-axis, people. Log scale. Take it easy. And the y-axis is, of course, the different groups. So there are my friends and colleagues, Medhemonk. There's our total, you know, and, 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 and the median is not the message. You know, we love to say that in oncology, you know, median is not the message. It's about the tail. Isn't it about the tail? Yeah. Uh, I hear that. Yeah. We, we, you know, we struggled with this a little bit and this is something that Tim, um, Tim's great at what he does. And he also insists that it's done properly. Right. So this is very right skewed data. So reporting the means or the average is really not representative. So we report the median. Median, um, yes, but the, even but the median the, is not the message. Yeah. The, the median payment to medical or hematologic oncologists in 2018 was about $450. Mm-hmm. The mean was about $6,000. Um, and the, as you can see, the right skew there is pretty extensive, and it goes out much past the $100,000 mark um, to the top, earn, the top earner, so to speak, in that field was just under $600,000. Um, U.S. dollars in 2018. Beautiful. Yeah. And we'll talk about what it means. And then look at the surgeons, a little bit lower mean, but quite a broad distribution. The radonks, a little bit lower. The pediatricians, 
they're in on the action for some of these drugs because I guess there may be some pediatric uh, off-label uh, use, but you know, nonetheless, some off-label use is acceptable. Laboratory medicine, imaging folks, internists. Internists are in on the fun. Perhaps some of them are maybe hematologists is not coded as such. Um, primary care doctors and GPs, interessante. Mm-hmm. And then uh, dermatologists, of course, because uh, simiplumab um, and, uh, and vismodegib, uh, maybe drugs in their arsenal as well. Okay. Um, all right. You can unshare your screen and let's talk. Yeah, okay. Okay. So, so what, what do you make of all this? What are you to make? It, it, it's honestly difficult to process. Um, I think, I think on some levels, the data are not terribly surprising, right? So like, I think on some levels, we'd expect that the majority and the highest value of payments are going to the folks who are prescribing the drugs. Um, that is not that surprising. What I think is surprising is, is as you pointed out, there's distribution of payments to folks um, who are not kind of typically prescribing the drugs. And, you know, I think especially in the era that we live in, speculation um, perhaps is a bit dangerous. Um, but, you know, folks asked, what do you make of the, the image, the diagnostic imaging or the radiology data? Because I think that's um, the value alone is staggering. And then as we talk about in the paper um, and showing one of the supplemental figures, um, 70% of the payments to radiologists are, are for one particular drug. Um, and it's no surprise that drug also happens to be um, the drug that earns the most revenue out of any uh, cancer medicine in, in the history of the pharmaceutical industry. Um, so, you know, I think the most, what I want to believe is, is kind of the explanation there is that those payments are being made to radiologists for rightful work that they are doing in interpreting um, imaging for clinical trials. And just to make it clear, I believe that people should be reimbursed fairly for the work that they do. Um, however, I question why those are listed as consulting fees. Um, and the other thing that I think needs to be recognized is that when you read the methodology for most randomized clinical trials, when they talk about the radiology re review, they talk about kind of an independent central peer review. And then I guess, you know, you have to ask the question, if it's independent, why are the salaries or why are the, the fees for those radiologists being paid by the pharmaceutical industry? I think, um, I think that's problematic no matter how you spin it. Um, so that was something that I've kind of thought a lot about and, and it, you know, I don't, I don't have all the answers. Yeah. Admittedly, I don't know how to, how to rationalize it, but that data is striking. Um, and I think it's something that's at least worth the discussion. Yeah. I think that's a good point. That's a, that's a, that's a good point that um, I hadn't thought about too much before this moment. So I'll think about it in a second while I talk about the thing I wanted to say. Sure. What else I wanted to say this to, to you. Um, what do I think about it? <clears throat> I think, you know, it's easy to look at this data and be like, oh, well, the median take-home pay is not that much. And the average doctor is not taking that much. So no big deal, nothing to see here. Let's go home. It's easy to say that. It's naive to say that. It's naive to say that because the influence of the average oncologist is not the same. The influence of an oncologist practicing in um, Duluth, Minnesota, taking care of his or her patients, their patients, um, it is modest. I mean, they can control the fate of their panel of patients. Um, they have some leeway. I mean, there's some standards, national standards. They have some leeway, you know, maybe 5% leeway over national standards or what other people might do um, in, in the fate of their patients, you know, a couple, maybe 100,000 people at, at the most. They, they may be paid $100 by to go to a, a Merck dinner about pembrolizumab, how it unleashes the immune system. That's what I hear it does, apparently. It's unleashing it. It's a leash on it and just 
take that leash off and cancer's gone. And sometimes you unleash it and there's a 13% response rate as we're going to see we'll talk about next week. Okay, well, what about the other 87%? Apparently, where's the the leash still tied on the leg or something? You know, what's going on with this leash? Is it tangled? Did it really come off? Okay, anyway. So, all right. So this person got a $100 thing. Are they influenced? I don't know. You know, I think there are studies that do implicate that there is some influence to that transaction. Just like when you go to the airport and, you know, somebody hands you a flower and they ask for a donation, uh, that's a type of influence. It's this modest thing, it's, but it's influence nonetheless. Um, so, yes, I do think those things do matter on the margin. They, but if you did away with them, you know, people aren't going to be that much worse off. It's a tiny fraction of money compared to the annual income. It's a drop in a ocean of their annual income, I would imagine. I don't know. I'm not one such doctor. Um, but- there's 5% of people you found who make over 100,000, not $100,000, $10,000 a year. And now- 5% over 10,000 and I'm uh, just under 1% over 100,000. Yes, and now we're talking about the real players in this system because these people are people who influence more than the care of 100 people. And they have more influence than a 5% on the margin. Are you going to do one drug or the other drug? These are people who often write the guidelines, who, who give the CME talks, who set the national agenda, who decide what research will be highlighted at these forums, who um, go and testify about whether or not Medicare should make changes in their payment models, who go and criticize ICER when they're trying to do cost-effectiveness analysis, who say what drug should be on formulary, whether or not Blue Cross should cover a drug, or whether or not um, you know some other company should cover a drug. They decide what their local hospital will do, whether or not they give these drugs to these patients, what their local algorithms are. Um, they have huge latitude, and then this will influence community practice. These people, they have more than 5% leeway. They can swing it a lot. One, one recommendation can swing it immensely. They write the editorials, which, which is how a lot of people process the paper because they're not reading the paper at the depth they ought to. They're certainly not listening to the plenary session, which will deconstruct it for them. Um, and, and, and these people are the people who are getting all the money. They're getting all the money because those are the ones you want to influence this whole process. And I think the net result of this, and we'll see this with the ODAC, I don't know the exact number, but I know many of the people on the ODAC have financial conflicts of interest and they're getting waivers, waiver, waiver, waiver. And then some of them say, you got to give waivers out. Like you got to give out a lot of waivers for this ODAC next week because everyone's taking money from Merck. So is there anyone who doesn't take money from Merck? Is there anyone who can adjudicate these questions free of the potential of bias? And I think the answer is no. The whole ecosystem is 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 greased with the money from the biopharmaceutical industry. And even the folks working at the FDA who do not actively take money, they are, the moment they stop working, they're going to industry. They're all moving to industry. Every single one of them is moving to industry. So their incentive is not to be a strict regulator. It's to be the kind of person who keeps a collegial relationship up because someday I might work there. You know, so I think that is what's going on with the medical oncology landscape. The radiologists, you know, maybe to some degree it is the kind of payments you describe, but maybe the up to another degree it is um, influence. Um, the people who are radiologists, who are radiation oncologists, they may suggest treatments at tumor boards. They may, you know, uh, steer people towards the treatments. They may need to know about these treatments for more people to get on these treatments. And so some of these may be also for influence. Um, and it certainly helps to not have animosity. I mean, some of this money is just to, I think, pay people to be quiet. I mean, there's many times I've written a paper and I've asked a colleague like, oh, we agree this drug is no good. We want to write this paper together. And the colleague told me, I don't want to because I'm trying to get a, um, trying to get a trial going from that company. So I think that um, those are the ways in which I see this as problematic. Yeah. Well, I think, you know, it's important to uh, just recognize that the payments are coming in, in a broader landscape and ecosystem as, as you often talk about that 
it's problematic on a number of levels. And the paper that Dr. Booth um, and his group just published, I think with Joey Del Paggio was, was the lead of the evolution of the clinical trial, um, increasing proportion funded by industry, increasing proportion using surrogate endpoints, specifically progression-free survival, yes. Yes. bigger sample sizes. And so yes. when you consider all of these issues together, um, it, it just becomes disconcerting about whether the agenda for uh, better medicines for our patients is being driven by the right people or is it being driven by um, for-profit industry. And I think, you know, it's difficult to kind of reconcile all of these findings, but at the, at, at the bottom line, you know, I, I want patients to have access to good medicines, but I also want us to be able to have truthful conversations with patients in the clinic about how the findings that they've read about in the news um, may not be representative of, of what we see in the, in the real world. And, and that comes down to issues in trial design and, um, you know, kind of right to try attitudes and, um, it just, it all, it all links together. So the financial conflicts is just kind of one piece of, of a broader puzzle that I think is, um, has, there's evidence to show in the last decade that it's headed in the wrong direction. Yes, I agree. Have you had a chance to read Malignant? Is this, is this a nice time to plug the book? Is it a nice time? Have you read it? Oh, you got a copy. Oh, well, well, well. You're in an elite cohort to have a copy of that because I just got the sales numbers for the first year. So let's just say <laughs> that's a collector's item, my friend. It's a collector's item because it ain't no bestseller. However, I'll, I'll get your signature one day on the front cover. Of course. Yeah. Hopefully, hopefully soon as this yeah. COVID as that hopefully this soon. Let's just say hopefully soon. Um, but the reason I say it and plug it and the reason I mention it is because I think, you know, obviously I tried to I mean, I mean, the whole goal of the book is to do exactly what you're articulating, which is to weave those strands together. And I actually, you know, I think that they, they do weave together. I think the price, the escalations in price, the conflict of interest, the standards for drug approval weave together. And I also think it weaves together with the entire research agenda and which compounds even advance. We've created so much incentive on the back end for the most marginal, modest product. We've launched a million ships on the front end. We're changing the threshold by which you would advance to a phase one because the rewards are so great and the bar for approval is so low. And so I guess I try very hard. You'll have to, I mean, I guess you're the judge of that. Um, you know, and particularly in the epilogue to try to weave all those strands together and show like why, I don't know, somebody was reading it, the, like an early draft of it was like, okay, he's talking about the cost and he's talking about surrogates and then he's talking about the cost of, you know, conflict of interest and like, why is he going back and forth? And then hopefully by the end, like they try to unite in a single narrative why they all link together, I think. Yeah. Yeah. I, I mean, I was a big fan of the book, so I'm, uh, it's, it's, a, it's biased, but it, I, yeah. I, I do think it's a, it's a very important book, um, especially for people like myself who are early in their training period, whether or not they're interested in oncology, because I think, you know, approaching it from someone, I'm, I'm a year into my career as a physician, right? Like I'm, I, I don't have the experience or the expertise that many of the people who are talking about these issues have. But what I can say pretty confidently is that, you know, my evolution as a, as a medical student to where I am, um, before listening to plenary session, like these aren't issues that you talk about in medical education. And when you're a first year medical student sitting in a lecture hall and a, and a lecturer flashes their conflict of interest slide and it's full, you know, you turn to your buddies and, and you, you smile and you laugh because you think it's, you know, um, that means that they must be a good physician and, and they must have influence. And, and you know, that's alluring in a, in a number of ways. And I, I think unless we start talking about these issues as, as being problematic, then I, then I don't really see a, a way out of, of the pattern. I think I agree with you. I think it's the death of the profession. 
Actually, this used to be something that mattered. The doctor was the person who set the agenda. Now the doctor doesn't set the agenda of the hospital. The administrator sets the agenda. And the doctor doesn't even set the agenda with their patients. The industry sets the agenda. And the industry is driven by a, a set of disparate incentives that incentivize modest and marginal and incremental and sometimes not even that advances uh, that reap massive reimbursement. Some of these drugs are not drugs. I mean, the drug is the package. The, the commodity is a financial commodity. A drug that does nothing for OS in a patient as it's administered is a financial product. It's a product that takes money from a lot of people and puts it in the hands of fewer people. It is a reverse. Uh, it is a, a, a reverse progressive product. It is a regressive product, a financial product, and that's really what it is. A lot of these drugs—they're not drugs at all. Uh, they're drugs by name only uh, because they don't actually change outcomes for people. So I think, I think it is important. I don't think people talk about it. So many things to talk about in medical school, and uh, and uh, but unfortunately. This is the most important. Actually, actually, this is the most important. And actually, they're wasting too much time talking about basic science that's irrelevant, that actually doesn't have a role in patient care. You know, I like to say that, and it's true. They're teaching a lot of useless basic science factoids. They're not even really teaching the basic science, which is experimentation, and why you believe what you believe. They're just teaching the factoids that are the remnants of the models that were experimented. What they don't teach is what a p-value is and how to interpret a trial and whether or not a subgroup is meaningful or whether or not you should decline treatment to a subgroup because it's confidence crosses one. They don't teach you about interaction coefficients. They don't treat, teach you about um, censoring. They don't teach you about control arms or post-protocol therapy. They don't teach you about non-inferiority margins. And if they're so big, you can parallel park a school bus in it that maybe it's not a good margin and maybe it's not a good drug. Um, so I think that the education is deeply deficient. It's deficient for the modern landscape where um, many for-profit entities are trying to hijack you um, and, and get you to prescribe their products. And you have no tools to adjudicate which products you ought to prescribe and which ones you ought not to. Um, uh, so I think it's bad. I think it's it's a slippery slope, right? Like, and and it's really difficult to navigate, especially early in training when I, you know, I don't have that much ground to stand on. But you know, I think I, I got to be clear. Like, I'm not I'm not anti industry because I think in a lot of ways, like drugs are brought to the market that do have legitimate benefits for our patients, and they are clearly quote unquote game changers. Thinking about uh, TKIs and, and CML, thinking yes, about uh, I'll give you that. Yeah, thinking about you know. Um, pembrolizumab for first line pdl one high non-small cell lung cancer um, in the clinical trial population that it was tested. I think I can't disregard the fact that 25% of patients are alive at five years. I think yes. that's, that's progress. This However, rec, this rec paper, but I'll say one thing about that. Uh, just one thing about that study. One thing about this study, that is the study of the pdl one over 50% cutoff. And it also has a problem, which is the outcomes are not the same for 55 as it is for 95. There's a big difference. And the difference is over 80, 85, 89. You really get the stellar outcomes. And so probably for that 55% pdl one I, I, I believe that they ought to be getting chemo Pembro. They ought not to be getting Pembro only. Anyway, that's my soap. Anyway, okay, go on, go on. But, but your but, point you know, is I, taken I, that these drugs do in the right population, given the right way, they do benefit patients, many of them, not all of them, but many of them. Exactly. And I think that is progress. It's important to recognize because yes. 10 years ago, we would, we would not be talking about yes. five-year survival and metastatic non-small cell lung cancer, right? Like, I think we can agree on that. Yes. The, the problem 5%. comes and, and and there's lots of data um, in other groups and also products in Alberta that we're working on, um, which show that the outcomes that when we give pembrolizumab to patients with PDL1 greater than 50% non-small cell lung cancer, the median survival is not 26 months. In fact, it's, it's not even close to that. Not even close. Um, not even close, yeah, because we're treating patients who have worse performance status at the outset, um, probably a number of other factors that are being used to select patients in clinical trials that you know, we don't really consider on the day to day. And I just think there's a big gap between efficacy and the effectiveness. 
Um, and, and despite the progress, you know, we're trying to almost move forward to the next immunotherapy, right? You probably saw this, yes. the relativity, the relativity study uh, in, in melanoma for the anti-lag three antibodies. Yes. Um, but if we don't even, we don't even know how um, these drugs apply in the best case scenario in, in melanoma and in non-small cell lung cancer, we're already moving to the next drugs before we even understand how the initial kind of immunotherapies should be optimized. I see. Um, oh, relativity met the primary endpoint of PFS. Yeah. Oh, thanks. Thanks. PFS. I'm just looking at it now. PFS. Great. Thank you. Uh, okay. No, your point is well taken, but I, I want to just add, you know, put more fuel on this fire, which is the efficacy effectiveness gap is itself an artifact of a really broken system where we allow the companies to run trials and people that don't look anything like Americans or Canadians or any of the countries that are paying for these drugs. We're allowing them to, to produce this data and giving them broad sweeping approvals. If you are going to bring to me people who look nothing like the average American, we should give them accelerated approval and make them do the confirmatory study in the broader population. And, you know, Rahul Banerjee and I have an idea for how to do that in a um, uh, sort of a, uh, a sort of a platform adaptive randomized trial design kind of like recovery. You know, we published that in Nature Reviews in the last year. But I mean, your point is well taken that, I mean, I'm also... I also like actually the best conversations I ever have are with people in the industry because I think they're some of the sharpest people. I think that there are people in the industry whose goal is to develop products that really transform outcomes. And I don't think they're trying to make marginal products. That's not their goal. Their goal is to make home runs. They want that. However, you have incentivized them for a home run almost as much as you've incentivized them for um, a, 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 uh, one, a baby step. You know, And if a baby step is getting the same market incentive as a home run, um, it will really change the entire landscape, the portfolio of products that are pursued, the trials that are, and then the other thing is if you, if you don't make anyone do good studies to show how drugs work, then you're going to get a lot of bad studies. Um, and I would say a bad study is, I don't need to know if a drug improves PFS in metastatic melanoma, which is if you are not cured of immunotherapy right now, um, uh, the only goal is to increase cure to fraction, in my opinion, of a novel immunotherapy drug. So we shall see. From lag. Yeah, I mean, yeah. with that specific trial, and again, I, I'm I haven't read it. Yet. I got you know, got to acknowledge that I'm not the expert here, so please correct me if I'm wrong. But no. my understanding was that if Nevo um, has a 20 month survival benefit <laughs> over Nevo alone in that setting, so my question would be, why are they testing? Why is the control arm Nevo monotherapy in that relativity study? Right, because they we've already yeah. shown well. Okay, I'll have to look into it. But um, I, my, my, I, I, it's been a while since I checked. But in my understanding of the study by Larkin and colleagues, which was the combination of Ipig and nivolumab versus nivolumab, is that they have never yet met statistical significance for the combo over the sequence of nivo than ipi. Uh, but uh, that's the last I checked. Um, but we shall see. We shall see. Anyway, well, when it comes, I'm going to do it as a plenary right. session. Huh? Pardon? When it comes, I will do it as a plenary session episode. Oh. Okay. Yeah. Sorry. We're straight. We, we've strayed away a little bit, but I think it's we straight away. Okay. Let's bring it back home. Okay. I will bring it back home. Your paper, your paper, unlike other papers, you start with the money on the drug and you which, watch where it goes. It's got beautiful figures. It shows where the money goes. The money goes more places than you think it goes. There is likely a reason why a very profitable company is putting the money in these places. I will give you the final thought. What are your final thoughts on this paper? So I think the, the paper was a really good opportunity for me to get involved in, um, in kind of a new, a new area of research for myself, um, work with people, you know, Dr. Booth, yourself, getting to work with my buddy, Tim. Um, so just like the experience of the paper was, was yeah. special for me. But I think more importantly, you know, what we've shown is that 
these payments are 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 wide seeking. They don't just go to the key opinion leaders. In fact, we estimated that probably 85% of medical hemato and hematological oncologists in the US are receiving payments extrapolating from the ASCO data. Um, although the median payment is pretty modest, about 110 per year for the entire cohort, there's a huge right skew. 5% of people are receiving over 10,000, mm -hmm. half a percent or, or, 100 and, or 209 people, sorry, are receiving over 100,000. And when we look on the drug level, it's kind of not surprising which drugs come in the top 10 in terms of total value of payments sure. every single year. Pembrolizumab sure. was number one. Every single year, nivolumab was number two. Um, and Dervalumab, another immune checkpoint inhibitor, sneaks in, in, in the top 10. Right. So, you know, when you look at the value of payments, they may seem large. We're talking about millions of dollars, but compared to the revenues generated from these drugs, which are in the tunes of billions of dollars, it's not a big ask for the company to, to make these payments if it increases their sales. Of course. I suspect it uh, it's leveraged many times over, probably the greatest ROI of anything they're doing right now. Uh, I hope someday you finish that second. That's little, don't let's not say it. Don't say what it is. That little other idea that I tossed you about where to take go from here. Um, I look forward to seeing that. I think that's going to make a little splash. But I, I keep telling people I'm out of this game. I'm out of this game. Um, and, uh, and, uh, but I'm, I'm in it a little because of Chris and you and you guys, you know, you got me in there a little bit, but I'm, I'm out. I'm trying to get out of the game and, uh, not because I don't I guess just because I just, I've gotten frustrated that I don't think people really care. It's hard to get somebody to care about something that I don't know. I think about why they don't care. I think about why people don't care about things. I think, and I think, I guess the answer to me is like, why don't they care about it? I think they're like, oh, you know, we're, we get, we're getting drugs. Some of these drugs are good and they're giving to some patients. Some people are benefiting and, you know, the company's making money and we're making some money too. And we're all working for good. And that's how the good system works. I think what's harder to, that's, so that's a fine narrative. Like we're all working together. It's a partnership and I get some money, you get some money. We're all doing well. And the patients are doing better than they were five years ago. An indisputable claim uh, in part, because even if there were no drugs, they would do better than five years ago because of advances in imaging and secular trends and mortality. But anyway, be that as it may. So I think that's the narrative. And I think the way I would push back on it is to say something like, um, you know, at least in the United States, we're spending we're spending twenty percent of GDP on healthcare. It's going up and up and up and up. Um, you know, Rome fell, I think, when half the days were gladiator sporting events, and the U.S. may fall when one out of every two dollars is for healthcare. I mean, a society can a society live just to pay for its own healthcare? I don't know the answer to that question. I suspect not. Um, so we have to at least some point wonder why we're spending so much money, and then our outcomes. Uh, you know, people say, "Oh, well, American medicine is the best if you're sick." Blah blah blah. I was like, "Yeah, you know, um, but our population is different. They're sicker, sure." Uh, but I don't think anyone can legitimately believe spending double and getting the outcomes we're getting are good. Uh, I think uh, it's it's a failure. There's so many people who don't get good care because they don't have access. And some people who with access may be getting a lot of over-treatment and over-therapies or drugs that don't work. Um, so I think we have a lot of problems. The cost- think, Sorry, go ahead. Go ahead. Sorry. Okay, well, go ahead. I, I'm just going to finish my rant. Um, okay. My rant is I'm trying to get people to care about like why this matters. The cost is so high. We're spending way more. Our outcomes are not as good as your outcomes for dollars spent, frankly. Um, and I don't think they're fully accounted for by adjusting for the population characteristics. Um, and, and the system is not 
optimized. It's not optimized for actual human beings in this country who are paying taxes. It's not optimized for the everyday American. It's optimized for people who are profiting from the most lucrative industry, I think, in, in, in America at the moment. One of the most lucrative industries is the biopharmaceutical industry where you know even a not-so-good idea can earn you a ton of money. And a lot of people are playing that game to get their crappy company acquired by another company that doesn't even know how crappy their product is and will never come to market. Um, that's all the largesse of this system that generates tremendous amount of reverse capital accumulation. Um, with the byproduct of better health. And all we're saying is that you can get more health and spend a little less money. You can change that incentive a little bit. And part of changing that incentive and breaking these incentives, changing the way Medicare pays for drugs, changing how we design trials, part of breaking all these bad things in the system is to take us away from our addiction to these little bits of money. These little bits of money are not worth it. They're not worth it to us. They're not worth it to our profession. They addict us to this process. They prevent us from change. And what that leads to is we are headed in a bad direction. If you break it here with the conflict of interest, everyone in a few years, they will have some sense. They'll say, I'm not prescribing your drug in the front line because you didn't have crossover and you needed to have crossover. Why it stops them from saying it now? A number of perverse incentives of which this is one. They're blinded to these things. They're blinded to the control arm. They're randomizing people to Chlorambucil. Maybe if they had no conflicts, they would say that that's not acceptable. Maybe if we actually invested in, in science and ran our own clinical trials, instead of constantly depending on the largesse of the industry, we might have some better trials that question established dogma or standard of care. So I do think conflict of interest is a deep-seated root problem in this system, and you need to cut that root. However, I'm not sure if the way we're going to win these people is one yet another paper showing them that this is a problem. I don't know how to win there. I think they're problematic. They are, uh, their minds are set and they need something to shake them out of their thinking. I don't know yet what that is. So that's why I'm back to the drawing board. Daniel Meyer, what are your thoughts? Yeah, I mean, just as you said, it, it, this is really a systems issue, right? And I think it's important to say that yes. on the individual level, like yes, I, I truly don't believe that receiving payments makes you a bad person. In fact, you know, I'm certain of that. And I think what we need to do is instead of going down to the individual person, um, this problem, exactly as you said, needs to be cut out at the root. And I think it's as simple as these payments should should not be allowed. Um, directly from industry to physicians. I think research payments, that's another discussion probably for a different time, but um, all we're doing is putting human beings in a position where um, they have incentive to make decisions. And I think it's natural kind of human nature to, you know, when you have skin in the game or this financial skin in the game, so to speak, um, you're swayed whether or not we want we want to admit it. I think the data is pretty pretty conclusive that we end up prescribing the drugs from the companies that we take more payments for. But this is not an individual problem. The the responsibility needs to come from the system level. Um, and I, I just I don't know if I have the answer for how that could could reasonably or, or realistically happen. But um, it needs to change. I think you're right, and I think that's a very important point you said. So I hope that anyone who listens to this, by the way, you know, nobody's going to get to the end of it. You know, nobody listens all the way to the end. Uh, but anyone who's still listening, I hope they don't take offense. We're not blaming individuals. We're talking about systemic problems. And I think it's important. I think you're right. It's important to differentiate those two. And that is the problem. Actually, most of the problems in society, I think, are problems of incentives and structure. They're not problems with people. People do what people do. Uh, you don't. You you, you want to fix it. You fix the you fix the way the money flows. You fix the incentives. And I think. I mean, that's what I hope to have talked about in Malignant. That's what we hope to do with this paper. The paper is, the paper is, the paper is Industry Payments to U.S. Physicians for Cancer Therapeutics and Analysis of the 2016 to 2018 Open Payments Data. I'm talking to the first author, Daniel Myers. 
He's a card-carrying planard. He's a terrific, terrific addition to internal medicine and to hematology oncology someday. And actually, actually, you don't yet realize, but the solution is you're looking in the mirror. Actually, the solution is people of your generation who actually are not yet cement in their ways will start to feel differently and then someday they'll switch. So that's what I think the solution is and that's what motivates some of what I do. So take care, Daniel Myers. Thank you so much for coming on. It was an absolute pleasure, Evan. I thanks for having me. Appreciate it a lot. You've been listening to season three of Plenary Session. Plenary Session is produced by Kiana Klossner. Music by Ian Straley and Audrey Tran. The views expressed on Plenary Session are those of whoever said it and no one else. Plenary Session is not medical advice. Follow us on Twitter at plenary underscore session. Until next time.